Welcome, welcome, welcome into another episode of Killing, Missing, Hitting Classic. I'm your old buddy Brad, and as you know, the month of December, we're not recording new content, but I still want to keep y'all entertained with some of my favorite episodes from the past, and this is easily one of my favorites. It may not be number one, but it's got to be in the discussion because this is a crazy case full of spycraft, impossible situations, all sorts of twists. It's like a good M. Night Shyamalan movie, seriously. I hope you're able to listen to this one in one sitting because it can get a little confusing with everything that bounces around. But if you like spy novels, if you like spy movies, and if you like just unexplained true crime murders, this is going to hit you right in the sweet spot. So I won't ramble on anymore. Let's get you to this episode. It's going to blow your socks off if you haven't listened to it. Our focus today is on Gareth Williams, an MI6 agent who died under mysterious circumstances, which caused all the heavy hitters in the espionage world to get a bit antsy. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Gareth was born in Wales in 1978. He studied mathematics and ultimately received a PhD in the subject. He was pursuing postgraduate education because you can never get enough math when he was offered a position with the GCHQ in 2001, which he accepted. The GCHQ is the government communication headquarters for the United Kingdom and focuses on providing signals intelligence for both the government and the armed services. Uh, If you're a history buff, it's the outfit that broke the infamous German Enigma codes during World War II. And fun fact, the GCHQ resides in a building affectionately referred to as the Donut. And if you look up any pictures of it, you will understand why, because it looks like a giant, shiny metal donut. His professors adored him, claiming that Gareth was one of the best logicians they had ever seen and were not shocked that he was recruited to the government, really because he was interested in codes and ciphers and uh, really spent a lot of of his mathematics training focusing on that. And he excelled at this work. His boss described him as a world-class intelligence officer and something of a prodigy. Friends knew him to be incredibly interested in cycling as a hobby, but he was not a very social man. After matches where all the rest of his teammates would go out to a pub for a beer, he would head home. Um, in fact, his family would say he really had no close friends and would rarely socialize at all with anyone outside of the cycling club. But he was considered a very friendly guy, funny, good sense of humor, easy to talk to. But as you would, might expect for a spy, he was very, very private. So, like I said, he had been working as an MI6 agent as well as doing the code-breaking stuff. And he was preparing to transfer back to the GCHQ on September 1st, 2010, because the spy thing really wasn't working for him. 
It was, and it was mainly the office culture. You know, it, it was a lot of machismo going around, and he was a little too private for that. Um, so, you know, he, he worked at or for the Secret Intelligence Service, the SIS, but we're going to call him MI6 because that sounds so much cooler. And plus, you know, James Bond, MI6 agent. So while he was working for MI6, he lived in an apartment in London. And it was in an area that many politicians and bankers resided in, which I take to mean that it was a nice, wealthier part of town. Um, you know, Garris' primary focus in his work was in tracking and cracking money laundering efforts used by mafia groups and the other elites in Russia. And it seems fair to say that his career was going very well until he disappeared. So Gareth traveled to Las Vegas for the DEFCON 10 conference. And this is a big conference that's focused on hacking. Um, you know, technical computer intrusion techniques, if you want to be a little more sophisticated sounding. And then he was scheduled to take a week's vacation after the conference ended. He was going to stay in Las Vegas and just enjoy some, some Gareth time. But during that week of vacation, he fell off the grid. And being such a diligent worker, his supervisors became concerned. And after having not heard from him for 10 days, they asked police to perform a welfare check on him. This was on Monday, August 23rd, 2010. When police reached his apartment, they knocked on the door, made phone calls, but received no answer. They then had the uh, letting agent let them into the apartment. They were immediately struck by a, quote, particular smell, as one of the officers said, as well as roasting heat. This Again, this was August, but for whatever reason, the heat in the apartment had been put at the maximum setting. They searched the apartment and didn't find much too odd until they got to the bathroom. In the bathroom, there's a bathtub. In the bathtub, there's a giant, what I would call duffel bag, although that's not the perfect description for it. And inside this giant bag was Garrus' body. Now, on the edge of the bathtub were a variety of SIM cards and his mobile phone. And noteworthy, too, in his living room, all of his electronic devices were neatly arranged on the coffee table, almost as if someone was begging police to look at them. Now, initially, police said the 31-year-old had been dead for about two weeks before they arrived, but they noted there was no signs of a break-in, no signs of a robbery, and forensic experts couldn't find anything meaningful. There was no strange hairs, there was no unusual fingerprints, no signed confessions, truly nothing. And, and that's not even on the bag. He, the bag he was in was this red North Face bag. And if you Google it, you'll, you'll find pictures of it very easily. Now, Gareth is squunched up into this bag uh, in kind of a fetal position from what I understand. And the bag has one of those U-shaped zippers on top. Well, the, it's got two zippers that come together, you know. The two zippers were padlocked together. And the key to that padlock was inside the bag, underneath the Garris' naked body. And again, let me just stress, 
There was no forensic evidence anywhere in the apartment. Not in the bathtub, not on the bag, not on the SIM cards, nowhere. Many speculated that the apartment had to have been cleaned after Gareth was locked inside the bag. And it's worth noting, too, this Gareth wasn't, again, he was very private. So the only people in the world that had keys to his apartment besides himself were a couple of his family members and then the letting agent. So when his superiors at the GCHQ hear about poor Gareth, they react as any good employer were. They immediately start doing CYA work. They meet with police to make sure the investigation was conducted very carefully, primarily to make sure none of Gareth's top-secret work is disclosed. The U.S. State Department, the National Security Agency, and the FBI all asked for samesies, since he had worked with all three agencies before his death. And I, I say this, I don't think any of this was nefarious or out of line. It just looks a little callous. Um... And, you know, you've got domestic and foreign intelligence services telling the police how to conduct their investigation, which just kind of introduces a very high chance of messing things up. And when you get into the investigation, it reads like a Dr. Seuss book. Well, like Dr. Seuss mixed with The Wire and The Americans, if you can imagine such a thing. So when it comes to the investigation, I really don't know the best place to start. This, this is just some big old ball that's hard to get your arms around. So we'll go with the scandalous bits first. So the police, for whatever reason, were all about throwing shade in this case. I don't know if they took the outside interference personally, but looking back on the story with 10 years of hindsight, I swear it looks like the police were much more interested in smearing Gareth's reputation than they were in finding his killer. Starting in December of 2010, police began reporting to the media that they had found somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 pounds worth of unworn women's designer clothing in Gareth's apartment. They revealed that when they first entered the apartment in August, one of the first things they noticed was a woman's wig on a chair. Police also let the press know that Gareth had visited a drag cabaret in East London four days before his death and found tickets to two more future shows. The investigation also revealed that Gareth's computer revealed that he would visit bondage websites in women's fashion sites, and they had at least one witness who claimed he could put Gareth at a local gay bar. Clearly, these are all very important facts that help us determine who killed this young man. Bravo, police. Bravo. Now, in fairness, even though it seems like the police are doing a bang-up job here, we have to say, in fairness, there's a few problems with these assertions the police are making or the suggestions and the inferences the police are laying around. See, they, they kind of painted it that Gareth was addicted to these bondage websites, when in reality, they had to admit that he visited them sporadically and rarely visited for longer than 30 minutes. 
They also had to admit that they only had the one witness who put him at the gay bar. And then if that one witness is to be believed, it was on one lonesome occasion. And there's other problems we'll get into in a little bit, but, you know, I try my best to keep this show as clean as I can. But dadgummit, I just want to dog cuss these cops. None of this, inf not one little bit of this information has anything to do with who killed Gareth. Yet apparently police thought it was just fun to take shots at a dead MI6 agent. I don't care if this man was gay, a cross-dresser, into bondage. It didn't amount to a hill of beans. It's a murder case. Treat it as such. And while I'm ranting, the dude was a spy. How do we know he wasn't going to these burlesque shows as part of his job? Maybe he needed to be a bit of an expert in bondage to cover up his work. I don't know. Okay, spoiler, I kind of do know, as we'll see in a minute. But this, this would shock... This wouldn't shock anyone if it was true. Second spoiler, he is. These allegations also forced the coroner's inquest to waste time discussing what role these items had in his murder and required the testimony of several witnesses, all who said, look, Garrett's not gay, those women's clothing, likely gifts for his sister or other women in the family, or maybe even some female friends. Now, there is one bit of information police leaked that could be relevant. At Gareth's former apartment, the landlady said one day she heard Gareth calling for help. She went up there to see what was going on, and when she arrived, she found Gareth tied to his bed, dressed only in his boxers. Now, Gareth claimed to have been practicing how to escape certain knots as part of his training, but the landlady didn't really buy the story. She said it had this feeling that it was a sexually motivated act. Now, I only point this out as interesting because regardless of who he's spending his alone time with, if these are the types of activities he's taking part in, he's demonstrating a willingness to put himself in potentially precarious situations, and that's something most spies probably would want to avoid. Now, fortunately, the coroner's inquiry was a bit more professional and focused just on the facts that were material and relevant to the case and not just an effort to dig into Gare's personal life. For those who don't know, and I, and I hope I understand this correctly, in England, and this is something that used to happen in the, in the United States too and probably happens in other countries, the coroner has the authority and the duty to investigate a crime parallel with the police's investigation. But the coroner's investigation is focused solely on the victim and how they died, what the condition of the body was, kind of the forensic and pathological clues, you know, whereas the cops are focused more on looking for criminal type evidence. But the coroner we have here is a lady by Viona Wilcox. And she indicated that she found no injuries on Gareth's body that indicated he had involved in any sort of struggle. There were no drugs or alcohol found in his system, but the body was so badly decomposed it was difficult to conduct a proper toxicology screen. 
Because of the lack of evidence, Wilcox said she could not determine the cause of death. But on the, quote, balance of probabilities, she thought it was a homicide, though there's no evidence another person was present when Gareth died. One pathologist theorized that Gareth could have died due to hyperkinapia, which is elevated carbon dioxide levels in the blood for us non-sciencey folks, and it could have caused his death in less than three minutes of being in the bag. Another pathologist was convinced when he gave his testimony that Gareth was alive when he entered the bag because of the difficulty another person would have in fitting a dead body inside this North Face bag. Considering the lack of evidence of a third party and the likelihood that Gareth was alive when he entered the bag, the coroner's investigation included efforts by experts to attempt to fit themselves into a similar bag and lock the zippers. Now, these experts made 400 attempts to do so and never successfully completed the task. Gareth, as far as we know, was not an expert in cramming himself into small spaces. But these 400 ex or these experts who did the 400 attempts were. And they reached the, the expert's final opinion. At least one of them offered the opinion that while he didn't think it was necessarily impossible, he said, quote, even Houdini would have struggled with this one. Now, these experts also made sure to note that for them to really get inside the bag while it was in the bathtub, they would have to use their hands on the side of the tub and they had to prop their feet up on the bath and on the tiles to get the leverage to get in the bag. And remember, we have no evidence of this at the scene. Now, forensic investigations of Garris Electronics offered no help either, other than to talk about what websites he liked to browse in his free time. Neither his computer nor any of the memory sticks he had in his apartment contained anything useful, and there was no evidence that anything had been tampered with after his death. Police again strained to point out that Garris' internet browsing habits on his personal cell phone were odd in their opinion, but noted his other phone, which had, was sitting on the coffee table, had been reset to factory settings and contained no information that they could pull from it. So one cell phone, he's doing his normal thing. His other cell phone, which I'm guessing may have been his work cell phone, totally wiped clean. During the coroner's inquest, it was found that police had discovered DNA on Garris' hand, but contaminated the sample to the point of it being unusable and then made a second, arguably even bigger mistake. When they entered the information about this DNA into their database, they misentered it. And when you pulled up that DNA sample from this case, it pointed to a Mediterranean couple. So police spent days chasing down these folks who had nothing to do with this crime. That's the level of police work we're getting out of the London Metropolitan Police on this one. So as I've kind of hinted at, the coroner 
finishes her investigation, and they actually hold kind of a mini trial. And after doing so, the coroner's final verdict was that Garrus' death was unnatural and likely to have been criminal, but there was insufficient evidence to render a verdict of an unlawful killing. The coroner's narrative verdict or summary of her findings or order, whatever you want to call it, indicated that there was a very strong belief that another person placed Gareth in the bag, but there was no evidence to support that. The coroner also specifically rejected any suggestions of suicide or some sort of sexual activity being involved. She opined that the reports about Garrus alleged interest in women's clothing seemed to be attempts at mani- media manipulation and Obviously, the coroner was highly critical of the police investigation, in particular their failure to even consider that this death could be motivated by spycraft in any way, shape, or form, as well as their failure to review several flash drives which they acknowledged they found at the scene but handed over to MI6 agents before they could inspect them. She also chastised Gare's supervisors for waiting 10 days to report Gareth as as missing. So, after the coroner's little report comes out, the police say, you know what? We're going to reopen this investigation. And they spend another 12 months investigating Gareth's murder. And during this second investigation, suddenly they're granted unprecedented access to MI6 personnel. And the result of their second investigation... Well, it was more likely than not that Gareth died as a result of an accident. Though they couldn't fundamentally, and beyond all doubt, rule out the possibility a third party was involved in this death. Police announced they could find no evidence of some sort of deep clean of the apartment that was made in an effort to destroy DNA evidence. They were also able to find a retired army sergeant who was able to successfully lock himself in a similar bag. Detective Assistant Commissioner Martin Hewitt, during the press conference announcing his agency's findings, was asked why their findings differed from the coroner's verdict. His response, and I quote, The coroner drew an inference, and I am now drawing a different inference. So that's just a giant middle finger to the coroner, right? Hewitt also vehemently insisted his detectives were never tricked or had the wool pulled over their eyes by any of the intelligence agents involved in this investigation. I'll also point out the FBI did their own investigation, but to the best of my knowledge, no official findings or conclusions were ever released by the FBI. Declassified documents I found indicated that the FBI determined that whatever Garrus' cause of death was, there was no nexus between it and the United States, so they closed their investigation in December of 2011. In reading in between the lines of these documents, which I admit is a dangerous game, I got the feeling that the FBI had no desire to get involved in this incident and didn't really care what the result was. For what it's worth... In an effort to defend Garrus Honor here, since we've had a lot of speculation thrown about, at least one forensic expert went on the record to say that he believes 
Garrus' spy duties required him to go undercover as a woman from time to time. Now, this theory is supported by the fact that neighbors reported seeing a woman coming and going from Garrus' apartment by herself from time to time. And as a cyclist, he kept his head shaved, so putting wigs on would be easier, and he would shave his legs. That very same expert spoke to the police and gave them all this information, which they just ignored. Just in case you aren't annoyed enough at the coppers here. So in September of 2015, we're still kind of stuck with these same facts and no real conclusions or direction. Until a bomb goes off in this case. Oh my god, I'm so sorry because I'm going to butcher this name to no end. Boris Karpichtov, a Russian defector and a former major in the KGB, said in interviews that Gareth was actually assassinated by the SVR, which is kind of the current name for the KGB in Russia. So why? What interest would Russia have in some codebreaker like Gareth? Well, it wasn't so much that they had an interest in his specific skills, but according to Boris, they were very interested in his knowledge. Because apparently Gareth discovered a mole inside the GCHQ. So this mole was Russian and was known by the codename Orion. He introduced himself to Gareth while they were working together and tried to befriend him. He wanted Gareth to meet with another fella known only as Lucas, to discuss a career opportunity. When Gareth was in Las Vegas, he was introduced to Lucas at a nightclub. And while they were talking, one of the two men spiked Gareth's drink. According to Boris, they then took Gareth to an undisclosed location, some sort of rental house, apparently, in the nearby area, where they staged pictures of him, making it look like he was sleeping with men, with women, and was cross-dressing during all this, and attempted to use those pictures to try to blackmail him. So, Gareth goes back to his hotel, or is drugged back to his hotel, and wakes up the next day, and then has a conversation with Lucas, and he's asked if he wants to maybe work as a double agent. And Gareth says, no, not at all. And then they said, Lucas said, okay. Well, you need to work as a double agent because if you don't, we're going to use these photos to make you look like a cross-dresser and a homosexual. But to his credit, Gareth wouldn't budge. Now, remember that point where the coroner said the police harping on his women's clothing stuff was a media smear campaign? That's kind of interesting with this information, isn't it? So when neither of these tactics work, Boris claimed the SVR had no choice left but to kill Gareth before he could reveal Orion as the mole. And they did this by using an untraceable poison that was forced into Gareth's ear by using a needleless syringe. This poison was apparently a mixture of belladonna, asinite, and black henbane plant. Uh, Boris claims that SVR specialists, after the death, entered into Gareth's apartment shortly thereafter through a skylight to clean up whatever evidence may have been left behind, 
Hence, why no one could figure out the cause of death or find any useful evidence. Now, Boris thinks something went wrong during the cleanup because, in his opinion, it was very unusual for the SVR to leave a body behind. They prefer to dump bodies miles away, countries away if possible, just to hamper investigative efforts. Boris just happens to live in the same part of town as Gareth, and he noted that he would regularly see Russian diplomatic cars in the area. Boris paid special attention to these cars because he was worried that he was a target as the SVR. Boris also divulged during various interviews that every Russian embassy has what's called a Zaslan unit. This is a unit of trained assassins who exist solely to perform hit jobs like this in the country where they're assigned. So that's the basics of our case, and all I can say is wow. Just wow. Uh, it reads much more like a novel than a true crime case. If you want to do more research on your own, check out my show notes. This, this is one of the more thoroughly researched episodes I've, I've offered. So you've got enough to get you started on going down this rabbit hole. So my thoughts on this. So I, to begin with, I buy Boris's story almost 100%. You know, being a U.S. citizen, I think we're kind of brought up being taught how shifty and snake-like the Soviet Union and now Russia is, was, and probably to an unfair degree, but... My study of their business culture and their political culture, I'm totally on board with the gist of Boris's story. Uh, there's also at least one documented incident of Boris surviving an assassination attempt. And then shortly after he started talking about this case, Latvia suddenly asked the United Kingdom to extradite him to Latvia to face some apparently trumped up fraud charges as recently as this past September. But the UK didn't go along with it. They believed it was politically motivated. Now that being said, I'm sure some of what Boris has said here is exaggerated. Boris appears in a lot of interviews about this case and some other cases involving Russian espionage. I think he likes being in the spotlight. He's always seemed to get some new scandalous angle on a case. But like I said, I'm picking up most of what he's putting down. Now, while he tells a good tale, it's the other facts that really sell me on this theory. The initial police investigation was obviously a mess. DNA samples being contaminated and then recorded to point towards other people is astounding. Refusing to investigate any members of the intelligence community seems just negligent. And then actively working against the coroner's investigation, I have no words for. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the SVR was behind police investigation. But Brad, I hear you saying, I know how intelligent and wise you are, thank you, but are you truly saying the SVR was able to infiltrate the entire London police force? No, 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 no. Not the entire force. Here's what they did. In my opinion, this is just my speculation, they got in with some folks who had some rank, and that was long before any of this went down. Once this investigation started, 
those key assets were influenced to encourage the investigation to go a different route than it should. And, you know, if you have some young hotshot detective who passionately wanted to go against the brass's orders and investigate a certain thread that the SVR did not want anybody investigating, I suspect that one of these captains or whoever would take that young buck aside and say, you need to fall in line because you're making trouble in this case. And if you make trouble in this case, it's not going to be good for you or your family. And also look how aggressive the police were in combating the coroner's inquest and attempting to smear Garrett's reputation. The fact that the assistant commissioner went out of his way to say during the press conference that, well, the police are just going to reach a different conclusion was so amazingly childish. And the total focus on Garrett's alleged personal life was bizarre and unprofessional and did, did nothing to help the investigation. When do you hear about police willingly leaking details of a crime through back-channel sources? And you, It just doesn't happen. It hurts investigations. It doesn't help. But boy, oh boy, does that tactic not fit nicely together with the tactics the SRV attempted to use to blackmail Gareth if we're supposed to believe Boris. I just, mm, I have a hard time believing that's a coincidence. Maybe I'm naive, just don't see it. So when we get down to the nuts and bolts of this, this is how I see the whole thing going down. So Gareth is demonstrating himself to be a bit of a wonder kid at the spycraft stuff. He's a code breaker at heart, but now has been trained as a field agent. He doesn't care for that lifestyle, so he's preparing to go back to work to the GCHQ to resume his intelligence gathering. The Russians are aware of his talents from their moles. One, Orion, attempts to befriend Gareth, but some issues develop because Gareth is so intensely private. So he really makes his push while they're at their conference in Las Vegas. Try to get Gareth to unwind a little bit. And he succeeds. They go to a nightclub together. And he presents Gareth with the opportunity to make some extra money working for the Russians. So I imagine Gareth hears this out and is appalled. And then Orion is put in a really difficult position. And I think the easiest way he could blow this off is by saying that it was some test of loyalty his superiors had made him give. So knowing that Gar Gareth won't go willingly, he roofies him and has him drugged to this rental house where these photos are taken. Gareth wakes up in his bed, not remembering what happened the night before. Then at the conference, Orion plays this off as, man, are you okay? You really got hammered last night. You gotta be more careful, dude. You know, that sort of dialogue. I'm sure British people don't talk like that, but that's the southern version of what would have been said. A few days later, while he's on vacation in Las Vegas, I think then Lucas confronts Gareth. And he says, look, we've got these pictures, and we need some information. Now, I'm, not, I'm guessing Lucas does not say he works for Russia at all. He probably presents himself as working for another country who needs information on Russia, but Gareth's superiors won't play ball. Hey, we just want you to help us out. No? Okay. Well, look, we got these pictures. We got no problem publishing them if you won't, you know, play ball with us. Lucas takes this approach to be able to speak with Gareth while he's far away from other MI6 agents. I mean, he's on a vacation by himself. The conference is over. So Gareth is effectively 
professionally alone. This also helps to keep Orion from being implicated because they've put some distance of time in between that test and when Lucas approaches Gareth. But Gareth is kind of a genius, right? And he puts the pieces of this puzzle together anyway. So now SVR has to figure out what to do. They've asked him nicely. They've offered him some money. They've tried to blackmail him and nothing's working. And when Gareth returns home and he goes back to GCHQ, Orion's toast. And you know, the Russians have this reputation for being the masters of poisoning people they don't like. So Boris's story about the undetectable poison being forced into Gareth's ear makes some sense. What I don't know, what I can't answer, the biggest hole in my theory that I see, and y'all may see others, but the biggest mystery to me is I don't know how somebody gets in there and puts the poison in Gareth's ear without some evidence of a struggle. I don't know if there are two men there who ambushed him immediately. One puts him in a chokehold, the other one injects him. I don't know if we have Lucas show up again with a bottle of wine and say, look, I promise I wasn't trying to do anything nefarious. I apologize. You know how it is in this business. I'm trying to get this information however I can. I hope there's no hurt feelings. I hope we can work together again. Pours him some wine, refuse him again, shoots him up, then throws him in the bag. That's just total guesswork. But, you know, everything I've been saying is guesswork. So one important question that I would love to have answered that I couldn't find the answer to was, how was Gareth positioned in the bag? Again, Remember, the bag is one of those large North Face bags. It's got the U-shaped zipper on top, okay? If Gareth was found lying kind of on his knees with his head down, or if he's laying on his side with his back to the zipper, for lack of a better way to describe it, I think we could conclusively say he did not put himself in that bag because he would not be in a position to reach for the zippers laying like that. And this from, there's videos you can look at online of people trying to put themselves in the similar bag. And, I mean, it is a very, very, very tight fit for an adult male. Very, very tight. So it's not like Gareth could get in there, stretch his legs out, and roll around to the position he needed to to lock the bag. He would need to get in there with the intention of being in a position where he could lock the bag. So he would need to be laying on his side, facing where the zippers came together to make this work, or on his back. So if we knew which way he was laying, that could possibly help rule out part of the theory that the police went with. Even if he is in a position where he could have voluntarily locked himself in this bag, why would he do it in a bathtub? Wouldn't you, if you're going to be doing this, even it, let's say he's practicing his escapism like he was back at his old apartment when he got caught in that compromising position. Aren't you going to practice on at least carpet? I mean, maybe even your bed, someplace more comfortable than a bathtub. That's like the hardest surface in the world when you're on your knees for some reason. And I'm surprised that these basic questions weren't considered by investigators. I think they really got wrapped up into 
how bizarre the situation was, in my opinion. And if this was a murder, I'm curious why Garrus' body was left behind. I mean, I agree with Boris that it would have been much better for the criminals to find a way to get rid of the body. Because having Gareth be overseas and then effectively go missing is a whole different ball of wax than him being found dead in his home country. You've got an... In I mean, that that's a super red flag. An intelligence officer, a spy, goes missing in a foreign country. Alerts are going to go off everywhere. Manpower is going to be spread out so thin... And I, I know the killers would have known this. And so they really would have wanted to get rid of the body. But something must have disturbed them, like Boris said. And I reckon that really could have been most anything, you know? Even getting a report that a cop car had parked outside would have been enough to spook them, I think. And of course, that leaves us with nothing but to speculate at this point. Honestly, this is a case I could talk about for hours. I would love to debate this case with, with folks, but... At this point, we've covered all the facts, and I'm just running off of guesswork. So we're probably at a good stopping point. But in case you can't tell, I, I really got into this case. I'm certainly no expert on the world of espionage, but I can recognize a bad investigation when I see one, and the London police were doing everything they could to perform as bad an investigation as possible. So that's it. We'll put a bow on this one. I, again, I, I enjoyed putting this one together. I hope y'all enjoyed listening to it. Remember, we're looking for listener stories for our mid-December episode. If you've got some sort of tale of true crime or paranormal that you are involved in, send it my way. You know the email address by now. Don't pretend like you don't. It's info at kmhpodcast.com. Same as our website, www.kmhpodcast.com. You can even, if you have to, you can hit me up through social media or whatever. It'll just be a pain to read it that way, but you do you. Okay, now let's go to our palate cleanser. As you know, an episode doesn't really count in the books if we don't have a palate cleanser, so we got to take care of this, right? So here's what we've got this week. What do you call a bear who's missing his ear? A B. So you take away ear from bear, and all you've got left is the letter B. Very clever, right? Beautiful. Love it. Love it. I know. The palate cleanser. The rest of the episode is the sizzle. The palate cleanser is the steak, isn't it? Okay, with that, we're going to stop this show. It's gone on long enough. We'll close up shop. We love having you come to visit. Please bring a friend next time. We like having you be able to sit down, kick off your shoes, ignore your kids. Ignore your spouse, ignore your job, ignore all your responsibilities, and just enjoy horrible things happening to other people. That kind of makes you sound like a sicko, but I'm not here to judge, man. You know, everybody's got to live their own life. Um, like I said, bring a friend next time. Leave a review if you're so moved to. Subscribe. We adore subscribers. You have no idea. You will get the nicest gift basket eventually if you become a subscriber. So with that, we're going to say our goodbye for this week. We're going to head on out. Brussels sprouts. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at 
info at kmhpodcast.com.